today I have my friend Alonzo Paul from Canada, and we're going to be talking about finding hope in a falling world. And before we even get started, I just want to say how I met Alonzo Paul. Uh, we used to uh, work uh, at youth and uh, a little bit of young adults as well. Uh, back when I used to live in Canada, in Calgary, uh, and we became good friends, uh, we used to, we still do, we challenge one another to to become better, to go higher in God, and, and it's just a great friend, and I'm really excited for what Alonzo has to share tonight. Alonzo, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about yourself? What what are you doing at the moment? Uh, you, are, you are quite an exciting person. You have a lot of things going on. <laughs> so talk, talk through what, what's happening in your life at the moment. Yeah. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Alonzo Julian Paul. And yeah, uh, I'm so delighted to be here with everyone and sharing about hope in this fallen world and this, you know, all of these unprecedented sort of events that are going on. Um, a little bit about my story, like Manuel said, we met in Calgary, um, snowy, cold, yeah. minus 40 degrees Celsius <laughs> yeah. sometimes, Calgary. It was awful. It, even Jesus don't want to come out in minus 40. And so you guys in, in New Zealand probably have no idea what minus 40 is like. And um, anyways... So we started with youth ministry, young adults ministry, um, and then eventually I departed from that church in order to go to university in Oxford, this little second-rate institution that you may have heard of. It's kind of a fallback <laughs> for a lot of people. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, went there and studied theology at the university, and that's when I joined the RZIM team. And it's a team that's dedicated to helping people think through their questions um, to engage both the heart uh, for, for God, but not at the expense of bypassing the mind. Wow. Uh, Jesus calls us to worship him in, with all of our being, including our mind, with all of our strength, with wow. all of our heart, and with all of our mind as well. And so that's what we do. We think deeply, as many of you probably think deeply about your faith and really big questions as well. And now after three years in Oxford, um, I moved uh, back to Canada, but I moved to Toronto, uh, home of the Raptors and Drake and come on somebody. And, yeah. um, and so that's where I am now. And I serve in the RZIM Canada office and uh, wow. we're itinerant speakers is what they call them. So wow. basically what we do is we go into skeptical settings. So this is universities, this is schools, this is parliament, and we will um, present the gospel of Jesus and present it to scrutiny to a skeptical audience and wow. really tackle people's tough questions. Wow. And so I, I think it can withstand um, it's criticism and scrutiny, uh, scrutiny and analysis, and that's why I still follow Jesus. But I'm sure we'll get into that more afterwards. But that's what we do. That's what we do. That is exciting. I love that. I love how you are reaching people that not many people are reaching. So, um, and I love the ability to, um, you know, ask questions and get the answers that they are looking for, and you create that environment. So, Zo Alonzo. AKA Zoe, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> it's really good to have you here. So we're gonna get started. Uh, I collected quite a few questions from uh, from uh, our audience, and uh, and and it's just 
great to be able to look through these questions uh, with you. Um, I think the uh, I think this start is just let's talk a little bit about God's existence. Uh, I think that's probably the foundation of everything that we will be just talking a, about today. Just a small, just a small idea. And, it's and, just uh, a small, yeah. Forward, this yeah. is a small topic. <laughs> Everyone knows that. <laughs> you, have, as you mentioned, you have studied a lot uh, uh, to be where you are. How God has um, uh, given you so many opportunities that comes back off a lot of studies, a lot of uh, sacrifice, um, and a lot of you know digging deep into God. Um, why uh I would love to hear from you um Alonzo, what are some of the compelling evidence for in, uh, for intelligent de- de- design what are some of the compelling evidence that we see in the world right now for uh, an intelligent being mm, yeah that's a really good question um and let me just say let me just frame it like this um yeah. and with one preliminary remark uh right now everyone that's watching uh you're about to witness Manuel plunge the depths of my ignorance. And I say that because I'm still on the journey as well, as many of us are. I've dedicated time to looking into the evidence, but by no means would I claim that I know everything. And so at any point during this talk, um, if you find an answer unsatisfactory or you just plainly disagree with, I actually hope and pray that that is the case, because what that will cause you to do is to go and look at the evidence for yourself, to go and research and dig into what are academics and other authors thinking about and writing about and engaging with. So that's Mm. my sort of preliminary remark. So when it comes to uh, when it comes to, you know, the existence of, of God, um, I like to think about it in the following way. Um, I think of it kind of like uh, solving a case. I don't know if you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I'm a big Brooklyn Nine-Nine <laughs> kind of guy, right? Or Sherlock yeah. Holmes or any of these sort of detectives. Uh, if, yeah, yeah. if it's Sherlock Holmes, it's got to be Benedict Cumberbatch. Come on, somebody. Yeah. Um, and, and any of these things. And, and, and what do they do? What do they do? Well, they approach uh, a crime scene or some other mystery. And what do they have to do? Well, they can't, they don't have absolute proof that somebody Mm. has done something. Mm. Absolute proofs, because lots of times we get asked like, you know, prove to me, bro, that God exists. And the fact of the matter is this, and and, uh, one of um, the guys that taught me back in Oxford, John Lennox, really helped point this out. Uh, He's a mathematician, uh, a professor of mathematics, rather, at Oxford University. And he really illustrated this well, is that proves when you're talking about proves in like a proper sense what Mm. you're talking about is things like two plus two equals four that's a that's a proof um however these proofs actually are quite rare they rarely exist outside of the theoretical realm of mathematics so this is what you have to do and this is why i was saying brooklyn 99 and mm. and sherlock holmes is they will go to a crime scene or whatever they're investigating and they'll look at the evidence and they so suppose it is a murder scene and there's a weapon and there's an eyewitness or somebody that heard something and perhaps there's some dna left behind some blood or saliva or something like that and they will take all of this evidence into consideration And then they will try to infer the best explanation for what has transpired. And that's Mm. the same way 
to think about it, to conceptualize and frame it when we're thinking about the existence of God. There's not a two plus two equals four sort of proof that mm. God exists, but there's many pieces of evidence that taken cumulatively as a case that would suggest that God is the best explanation for wow. what we see in reality. Does that make sense? Wow. So some of the things that I think about, let me just give you a couple, because there's there's tons. If you want to yeah. uh, read something great on it, you can look at Richard Swinburne from Oxford University, Alistair McGrath from Oxford University. You can look at Alvin Plantinga, Notre Dame University, and many, many academics are thinking about this stuff. This is not just people in church that you know, keep their head in the sand, so to speak. These are at the very height of the academy. People are thinking about this. So just mm. a couple that I think about personally is mm. this. Um, the beginning of the universe, yeah. the fine-tuning of the universe, and the complexity wow. of life. So this is really interesting. This is fascinating, actually. Wow. So when we're looking at the beginning of the universe, um, they actually, like scientists, scholars, uh, cosmologists, and so on, for many, many centuries thought the universe was eternal. So it had no beginning and will have no end. And that was the standard view, the standard mm. model of the universe until modern science. Mm. These boys like Albert Einstein and them discovered mathematically and with modern technology that there was certainly a beginning of the universe. It began to exist. Now, this is critical to capture because everything throughout the whole entire course of human history, anything that has began to exist has a cause. You know yeah, what I wow. mean? Like computers don't begin to exist randomly. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Babies don't just pop out of thin yeah. air randomly. I'm not going to explain how that happens. I'm going to leave Manuel <laughs> to do that. Pastor <laughs> can, can handle that sort of questions. Where do those babies come from? But everything that begins to exist has a cause. Well, mm. it stands logically to reason that if the universe began to exist, then it has a cause, a cause that is outside of itself, a cause that is unfathomably powerful, that is immaterial beyond time and beyond space, because, well, time and space are within the universe, and it would take an immeasurable amount of power to create all of the matter that we see, all of the mass energy, and so on and so forth. And so that capital C cause, or I'm not sure which way you're seeing this, capital mm. C cause uh, with those sorts of characteristics, we Christians would identify, or really any monotheistic religion uh, would say that's God. And so there's that, and then there's fine-tuning. I'll briefly do fine-tuning. You need to check out, um, you can do this on YouTube, uh, William mm. Lane Craig's video on fine-tuning is absolutely spectacular. Um, wow. But many, many academics as well are, are looking into this. William Lane Craig's uh, one of the most influential philosophers in the 20th and 21st century. And, uh, and he just lays out all of the numbers. In, in short, there's 34 fundamental constants, or wow. there's probably even more so now, um, at least 34 fundamental con constants within physics that govern the universe, that if they were changed even by a hair's breadth, uh, the universe would not be life permitting. So I'll give you a quick example. Uh, and these would include, you know, the speed of light, mass energy, um, gravitational force, and so on and so forth. And so I'll give you one example is, is, is gravity. So at the beginning of the universe, which we know happens, uh, the beginning of the universe, there's an enormous explosion. 
if mm. gravity would have been too strong, what would have happened to all of the matter that was thrusted out at the beginning was it would have, if it was, if gravity was too strong, it would have eventually crunched in on itself. There wouldn't, it would be too strong for the solar systems and galaxies and stars and planets to form. Likewise, if it was too weak. So if it's too weak, then all of mass energy is thrown out into the universe at such a force that it does mm. not have the ability or capacity to collect into planets, galaxies, solar systems, stars, and so on. So huh. if, if gravity was not particularly fine-tuned to where it is, then we wouldn't have the possibility of life. And life is as complex as you could possibly imagine, probably more so. Um, just very quickly on the complexity of life, which was my third point, mm. um, there was Fred Hoyle uh, and his team of cosmologists and mathematicians that recorded the probability of organic life emerging out of inorganic life, just spon wow. spontaneously, is one in 10 to the 40,000th power. So wherever you sit on the Darwinian discussion about evolution, natural selection through genetic mm. mutation and so on, that is fine, whatever you think about that. But that whole theory is predicated on the fact that life exists in order to naturally select and genetically mutate. Does that make sense? So yeah. what Fred Hoyle, uh, the scientist Fred Hoyle is trying to demonstrate him and his team is, is that, that assumption aside to, to just get life from inorganic matter is beyond impossible. Any mathematician will say to you, anything that's beyond 10 to the 50 uh, 50th power is impossible. There's only 10 to the 80th power particles in the universe. Wow. So to say something like one in 10 to the 40,000th power, it's just astro it's beyond human comprehension. So when you take these three pieces of evidence, mm -hmm. I think like, you know, like Jake Peralta from Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Sherlock Holmes, mm -hmm. they yeah. take these three things and say, the best explanation is that there is an ultimate cause. Yeah. The best explanation is that there is a fine tuner behind the fine tuning. Yeah. And that there is a logos or a life behind the origin of wow. life. And I think that that's a pretty compelling case for, for theism in general, right? This would work for uh, all sorts yeah. of different monotheistic religions. Does that make sense? And that's just the beginning of, Wow. You, go, you go and check out Alvin Planinga. He has 22 plus arguments for the existence of God. And, uh, and you know, at the very height of the academy, they're thinking through these things. So that's wow, I love it. the beginning of a response. That's good. That's really good, man. Uh, I love it. I love how you're explaining it so well. Um, Alonzo, um, if, what if I'm an atheist? Um, what are some of the practical applications of that worldview? Atheism. What are some of the things that are, if I'm an atheist, what are some of the things that I should believe? What are, what, if you're what an is, atheist, what is what the implications? You, what is the what are the implications of the uh, the atheist worldview? Oh well, I think they're probably nearly infinite uh, different extrapolations and um, and and practical implications that would arise out of atheism. Um, if you're an atheist watching this, first of all, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to tune in and 
we really mm. appreciate you. And, yeah, and yeah. I'm not going to be like, yo, atheism sucks and all of that sort of thing. That's, <laughs> that's not my jam. Like lots of my friends and lots of my family are atheists and I would be embarrassed. Uh, and I'm embarrassed too when certain religions or certain people within religions, specifically in Christianity, that make atheists feel mm. undervalued or unheard or silly or stupid mm. or any of those sorts of things or or just mm. hurt. I know atheists that have been hurt by Christians and it's to our shame. It's to our embarrassment. Jesus yeah. of Nazareth would never do something like that. And mm. they don't represent him well. In fact, I would say they're being disobedient. They're going directly mm. against his commandments if they've made you feel that way. But what mm. I want to say, just getting back to that point, I just wanted that little caveat because my heart really does go out to anybody that's genuinely searching and seeking. And it is this. I would highly suggest to you to read the following author, Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is a titan when it comes to literature. His books are what they consider to be canonical, as yeah. in they disproportionately influence the subsequently written books that come after them like they're they're canonic they're they're impacting other literature because they're so wow. brilliant and so complex and what dostoevsky does is he brilliantly illustrates the logical outworkings of an atheistic materialistic rationalistic worldview hmm. and he he doesn't straw man you i think he represents atheism well and therefore, some of, like in his novels, some of the most brilliant, charismatic, good-looking, good-hearted people are the atheists. And then he's engaging with their ideas there. Some of the um, mm. and, and some of the negative implications I think that come from atheism are things like meaning and death. Um, yeah. which ultimately connects to our theme of hope. So for me, yeah. for instance, like I could find as a, suppose I'm an atheist. Well, I could find all sorts of meanings. Um, I can find meaning in my boxing club. I can find meaning in football. I can find meaning in my family and friends mm. and so on, or even just being uh, somebody that positively contributes to the lives of others mm. in some sort of altruistic sort of manner. And that's, that's great. But th th this sort of meaning is, is, is really awesome. Like I wouldn't ever say like you shouldn't do these sorts of things. However, mm. there's a real significant problem when it comes to these meanings. And it arises from the writings of Viktor Frankl, a, a psychiatrist that was of uh, Jewish descent, a believer in God that got thrown into the Nazi uh, concentration camps during World War II. And what he identified is this, and this is groundbreaking. He's in the yeah. same class as Freud and wow. Carl Jung and these boys. This is a heavy hitter um, uh, and a significant contributor to the field of psychiatry. And he writes this. He's like, you know, these, these hopes that we have, these, these meanings that we find in our lives, they're intrinsically fragile. Wow. It means they're destroyable. Does that make sense? Like they can yeah. be taken away from you. Yeah. And it can shatter you. And he talks about the power of hope in a person's life. The power of hope in a certain, what he observed in the concentration camps is that somebody put all of their meaning, all of their hope into something like their prestige, their social status, their family, but it was taken away from them, their human identity, their own autonomy, and it was taken away and it was destroyed. And it likewise destroyed them. Wow. They, they put their all of their 
weight on this thing that could not bear all of the weight of the hopes that you have and the meaning that you need existentially for your life. Mm. And he records. So this is a fascinating story, actually. Yeah. This is really cool. Yeah. So there was a prisoner. He has a dream. And this dream was this premonition he interprets. And uh, he said, and this you can find this in his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And he finds in this uh, in this dream he has, he's like, you know what? Uh, in this dream, I felt like the war will end on March 30th. So he puts all of his meaning, all of his hope in this thing, eh? Mm. And uh, as March 30th approaches, on March 20, uh, on March 30th, um, the war doesn't end. Oh. And he is shattered. And he, he is so shattered that he grows sick. The next day, he loses consciousness because he is so sick. And the day after that, he actually succumbs to his illnesses and dies. And Frankel oh. records that he literally dies of hopelessness. Wow. Like it so affected his physiology and psychology that his body could no longer fight off the diseases and sicknesses in the concentration camp. And so what he identifies is like, these hopes are good, but that you need something that's transcendent. Yeah, You need a hope that's outside that is not destroyable, but invincible, not wow. vulnerable, eternal and everlasting. Yeah. And for Frankl, for me, I found that meaning and that hope in the person of God, in the person of Jesus Christ. So yeah. that's just one aspect to consider when considering and thinking through logically your um, your atheistic worldview. It's the same thing with uh, atheist uh, philosopher uh, Rus uh, Russell. Um, uh, oh, now I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Bertrand Russell, Susan Blackmore. Uh, John Gray, all of these great atheist thinkers will all say the same thing. Ultimately, if you're an atheist and atheism is true, ultimately your life is meaningless. Ultimately, there is no hope. It's all false hope uh, because wow. at the end of the day, the universe will eventually just freeze over as it continues wow. to expand and everything that you've achieved and built will come to nothing. Wow. That makes sense. That's awesome. Your insights are really powerful. I love it. Um, we will. Uh, I'm going to dive into some into some other interesting questions that people have asked. Why would a loving God? We believe that God is a loving God that He cares for us, that He cares for humanity. Why would such a God send people to hell? I think that's probably one of the questions that Christians struggle the most to explain. Why would our God send people to hell if they don't believe in Him? What are, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, First of all, I think that this is a really great question. Um, and I, I mean that 100% sincerely. This is something actually my wife and I um, have wrestled through um, and wrestle with at times um, because it's, it's such a, you know, it, it's, it's startling. It, it, it shakes you at your core um, to think that that's a possibility of your future reality and afterlife. And I'm, I'm, I am of the camp that believes in hell. I think that's, and, and the reason I, I think I believe in hell is because Jesus believes mm. in hell. Yeah. In fact, Jesus is the one that teaches the most on hell. And so I think I have to take it seriously as a follower of him. Yeah. And 
So let me just let me just say a couple of things. Yeah. And 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 really, this has come on the back of you know my wife. Her name is Khadija. Yeah. And uh, she is she's half um, Punjabi, half Tanzanian. And the Tanzanian side of her family is Ismaili Muslim, and the other side of the family is uh, a denomination of Sikhism called Nirankari. And we've thought about this, like, hey, man, like, this might be a reality uh, for for these sides of the family. Hopefully not, but it might be. So, like, what's going on here? So I think there's a couple of things that you need to do. There's a couple of just misconceptions, I think, that we just have to wrestle through, and then we'll I'll get to my answer. The first mes- uh, misconception, I think, is that we think, we envision or conceptualize that hell is this secret torture chamber yeah, that God yeah. has if you're very naughty. You, you know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, that's where we conceptualize these, you know, these devils in red pajamas with pitchforks. And, you know, there's these fire everywhere and all sorts of nasty things. And it's like this torture chamber. Well, a lot of that thought isn't actually in the Bible. So oh. that's a very significant thing to Remember, again, I want to really hide behind the person of Jesus here. I I don't want to think more than what Jesus thinks about hell, but I also don't want to think less than what Jesus thinks about hell. And these sorts of misconceptions really come from pop culture. They come from movies. They come from Dante's Inferno, which is written, I believe, in the 12th century, where you get Mm. a lot of these... Um, different descriptions that would have subsequently influenced other people's thoughts on it that aren't necessarily rooted and grounded in the Bible itself and what Jesus taught. And mm. it, and it's a fictitious account um, either yeah. way. So I wouldn't draw my theology from a fictitious account necessarily. So that's, I think, the origin of some of these ideas that we have that, hey, this is some unjust torture chamber that God has. I don't think that that's true. But I do think that hell is a real place. And this is why, like I said, Jesus believes in hell, so I believe in hell. So what do you think yeah. hell is then, therefore? Yeah. Hell seems to be, and I think C.S. Lewis got this right in his book, The Great Divorce, and some of his other writings, is that hell is a place, a destination that you desire and posture your life towards. Wow. So, so think think about it like this. Think about it like this in terms of relationships. So we're thinking yeah. about this relationally. Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, that famous atheist, um, yeah. said, "Man, if I go to heaven, heaven would be hell for me. Be- why? Wow. Well, because I don't want God. I don't want Him. And therefore, if you've ever been in a room with somebody that uh, that you don't like or that doesn't like you, it's it's this." weeping and gnashing of teeth that goes on. You you don't want to be with that person. And mm. I think that's a lot of what's going on here. Uh, Lewis and, and others are describing hell as a, a cage that's locked from the inside. It's a place where God is not. Wow. If you, through your entire life, reject God and want nothing to do with him, as he extends his hand of relationship, towards you, you that are listening today and whoever else is listening, God extends his hand of loving relationship towards you, of forgiveness and peace with him, to know him, your creator, in an intimate sort of way. 
But if you don't want that, well, it seems to reason that after you pass away, you have to go somewhere. Yeah. God can't force himself on you. So what does mm. God have to do? God has to create a place where you can go that would be absent from him. I think that's more what Jesus wow. is talking about. And wow. this is really this is really in, critical to to remember as we're thinking about this because it's not just Lewis that thinks this, this is Jesus that thinks this. So there's a story that Jesus tells about rich man and Lazarus. I don't know, you probably hopefully yeah. you're familiar with it. If not, you yeah. can you can google it. And uh this this poor man Lazarus He's a beggar and he's a servant and all of these things. And um, and he passes away. He's on the bottom rung of society. He passes away. And he goes to a positive afterlife. Whereas the rich man who indulges himself, he's very uh, egocentric. He's very um, self-centered and looking after his own needs and, enjoy, and enjoys luxuries and so on. And he goes to what you and I would consider hell. Mm. And there's some fascinating things that we can learn here as we're thinking about what is hell. Well, there's, well, what would be some of them? Some of them is this, it is eternal and it mm. is conscious. So you, wow. he's this, wow. this, this person, he remembers his, his life. He, he remembers his siblings. He's aware of himself. He's aware of other people. Um, he has his body. Um, he has the awareness of other bodies. He says to the uh, he says to Abraham in this exchange. He says, "Abraham, get uh, um, Lazarus to dip his finger in water and just put it on my tongue." So there's other people he's aware of. We're aware wow. of body parts, the tongue and the fingers, and so on. And so that's a beginning of an understanding of what this is. What are we not seeing? We don't see like some fires and all of this. What I think is this New Testament metaphorical language. You know, the the New Testament's full of metaphorical language. You know, Jesus says, "I am a door." Well, yeah. is he a couple of two by fours put together? Like, yeah, yeah. no, probably not. But he is a door. Yeah. yeah. You know. And so I think that's some of the language that you find in the New Testament with these lakes of fires yeah. and so on. But this is where we're getting a, a, a picture of what hell is like. Now, this is what's interesting. This is what's interesting. What does the rich man say? What's the first thing that he says to Abraham, who's listening to him? Does he say, Get me out of here. Wow. Why not? No. Yeah. Wow. What's the first thing he says? That servant, get him to get me some water. Yeah. yeah. Hell seems to be the full manifestation and realization of everything that you're becoming this side of the grave. Wow. He was on that path before. And now all restraint is off, and he is fully who he is becoming. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, wow. And you don't hear any sort of cry for, get me out of here, I'm so sorry, no repentance, none of those sorts of things. I am where I want to be. I don't want to be there. And God honors those people. He honors your free will to the extent of, if you don't want me, then you wow. don't get me. And it, it, I think that it, as severe as so some good. of the language is in the New Testament, I think it's probably the reality is far worse. Wow. Because wherever God is, his attributes are wow. beauty, yeah. light, yeah. love, peace. 
Well, what would wow. be the opposite if God wasn't there? Chaos, not life, darkness, and so on. Wow. You, you know what I'm saying? So uh, yeah. I think, man, I love your explanation. Yeah, go go ahead. You want to find? No, I just I think that that's what's going on. Um, lots of people that I encounter, and I did too, are are thrown off by some of the languages, and it really just takes, you know, getting into some of these commentaries, seeing what people are thinking about, seeing what Jesus thinks about it. Yeah, um, because he's definitely, I think, because he's the one that is because he has the greatest sort of capacity of knowledge because he's God in the flesh. He's the one that says, hey, this is not where you want to go. Wow. You want a loving relationship with me. Wow. Trust me. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah and, I love it. Um, yeah. Wow, I love it, man. <laughs> I don't think I've heard someone talk about hell like that uh, before. <laughs> man, really love your insights on that. 